Let me say, friends, it really has been an absolute joy to be with you over this uh, weekend, today especially, here in Hope Church. It's done my heart good. And a big thank you also to Ivor and to Rosemary for their delicious hospitality. It's done my tummy good. And I trust the Lord will continue to bless you in wonderful ways in days to come as well. So thank you so much for the warm, warm welcome in spite of the weather outside. My heart was burning within me. And I'll tell you one or two reasons why. As you, Ivor has hinted already, we travel around different churches, different parts of the country and elsewhere. And be encouraged. This is one of the friendliest churches I have ever been in anywhere. So don't lose that, dear friends. That is something that is quite unique. And I have to say it's a rarity among many churches even today. Evangelical in that field I include. So big, big thank you for that. And I mean the kiddies this morning, they brought so much joy to my heart as well. You can travel around, do little kids' talks in churches. I only have the one, so if you ever ask me back, it'll have to be the same one again. So there you are, my friend, doing the, you know. And, um, but you know, you often ask the kiddies questions. And you just get that look, don't you? There's no reply, there's no response, but they were an absolute treat this morning. And I told a few friends on Facebook about it this afternoon, and they were also overjoyed. So uh, keep that up, dear friends. And I see so many on a rather wintry evening also does the heart good as well. So my heartfelt thanks. Uh, having been here one time and renewed fellowship with Ivan Rosemary and Rachel as well with a new hairstyle, uh, do keep on praying for us. We really do appreciate and need that. And uh, just ask the Lord to bless a daft Irishman and he'll know which one you mean. Not him, but me. All right. Now let's turn to God's word, shall we? For me, dear friends, one of my favourite hymn writers of all time, and I just love the songs and the psalms that we have sung so far this evening, leaving the Gettys out from today's generation, one of my all-time favourites is a Welshman. His name is Vernon Hyam. He passed away only a little while ago. And he's the man who wrote that wonderful, wonderful hymn, Great is the Gospel of our glorious God. Vernon Hyam was a pastor for many years in Cardiff, and he wasn't always living life on the mountain top. I can assure you from knowing his story, he spent many, many months and even years in total down there plowing a lonely furrow in a dark, lonesome valley. And in one very, very, very low point in his life, he wrote another song. These words are so meaningful, I think. It goes like this. I saw a new vision of Jesus, a view I'd not seen here before, beholding in glory so wondrous, with beauty I had to adore. So I want us to take the first line of that little hymn this evening and use it as a theme for our Bible ministry. For you and for me, it's a new vision of Jesus. And as I hinted earlier, this really is what Revelation is all about. Because what we have here, certainly in Revelation 1, is an unblurred, undimmed vision of the glorified Christ. You and I come before him face to face with the majesty of God. And we see him 
exalted and enthroned on high. And I think our experience this evening is best summed up in the words of the chorus just behind me on the wall, the great old gospel song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You remember the writer says in the book of Hebrews, but we see Jesus. You remember somewhere, I can't remember exactly in the gospel narrative, but we have the Greeks coming and that sincere request, Sir, we would see Jesus. That's what we have right here in Revelation chapter 1. The big question this evening is this, how did John happen to see him? Well, as we read earlier tonight, he sees him in a ninefold way. And that's what we have detailed for us in verses 13 to 16. Now, I think, dear friend, this is undoubtedly a masterpiece. Every stroke of the Spirit's brush on the canvas of Scripture has a very, very special meaning. And the first one we discover, he sees him as the Son of Man. And that's how we see him depicted down there in verse 13. Here is the one you remember with whom John conversed in his gospel. And now for dear John, pension material and still some, at the end of the journey, this same Jesus is still there. And John instantly recognized him because Jesus hasn't changed. How true it is in the end of the book of Hebrews, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. He became a man for us so that he might know human life by personal experience. He knows what we're like, every single one of us gathered here presently. He knows what makes us tick, as it were. Here is one, says the writer, who has even been touched with the feeling of our weakness and need. I said reverently when I said this evening, when we speak about the Lord Jesus, he has been there and he has done all of that. And I'm sure the title Son of Man is of massive importance, isn't it? You remember that was the favorite title Jesus used in the gospel when speaking about himself. I am the Son of Man. What does it tell me? God became man. My friends, that's the heart of the gospel message. You see, if he is in God, then he can do nothing to save us from our sin. But if he isn't man, then he couldn't have died and paid the price for our sin. And so at one and the same time, Jesus is both God and man. And the first thing that John sees about him down there in verse 13 is the risen Christ with a humanity that is undiminished. Think about it like this, dear friends, forever like us and we forever like him jesus is the son of man the second cameo is jesus here set before us as the great 
high priest. Jesus as the great high priest. You remember we read of him down there as someone who was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. Now, we need to realise tonight, this isn't the garment of a peasant, the average peasant, farmer of Middle Eastern culture. No, no, it's not the short tunic. That's not what we're talking about here. What we have envisaged right here is a garment of wealth. It's a garment that actually denotes high position in society. It's one that actually points us in the direction of royalty. Can you imagine for dear John what a sight for the human eye? Instantly, John would catch a vision of the greatness of Jesus Christ. There is none like him. And the fact that he has a sash or a girdle, again in Bible speak, speaks to us of service. But did you notice where it is? That sash is not on the loins, for that's the place of strength. But it's rather on the chest. And again in Bible speak, that is ever the place of compassion. And the fact that it's a golden sash would seem to suggest it is something everlasting. You remember we read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but rather after the order of Melchizedek. And so what can we say about him tonight? His is a priesthood that is unchanging. But also at the very same time, here is one who is undertaking, thank God, and one who is understanding, thank God, another time. You know, it's good for you and I to often reflect, is it not, on the majesty of the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus, because the golden sash around the chest also speaks of his authority as king of kings. You remember Isaiah, that great evangelical prophet of the Old Testament era? You remember that breathtaking vision of the Lord? How did he see him? Well, he saw the train of his robe filling the temple. That was a scene of unsurpassed royalty, even dignity. And I think that thought is captured in that beautiful song. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be glory, honor, and praise. Majesty. Kingdom authority. Flows from his throne unto his own. His anthem raise. So exalt. Lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify. Come glorify Christ Jesus the King. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Jesus who died. Now glorified. King of all kings. If in the Son of Man. John saw him as the risen Christ. Here is how John sees him a second time round, as the Christ who is ruling and reigning. And he does it with a majesty that is unequaled and unrivaled. This God is our God. The third picture is the one we find down the page in verse 14. 
And that's where we come face to face with him when he is set before us as the ancient of days. Now, again, do you see how John describes him ever so vividly? He reminds us down there that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. That probably rings a bell, does it not? Isn't that very similar to the picture found in Daniel 7 and in verse 9 of the one whom Daniel the prophet says happens to be from everlasting to everlasting? And so when we see him right here as the ancient of days, here is one who is all wise. What does that mean? It means that for him in your life and mine, there are no accidents when he is in control. It means that here is one who never ever makes a single mistake. Here is one who knows exactly what he's doing, not just some of the time or most of the time, but rather all of the time. Here is someone who never ever has to second guess himself. Here is someone whose hindsight is never better than his foresight. Here is someone, John reminds us here, whose wisdom does not improve with age or experience. No, my friends, he does it exactly right, first time, every time. The ancient of days, an all-wise Jesus. But you know, it also reminds us tonight, does it not, of one who is totally pure, of one who is whiter than white, as the one who is the redeemer, the rescuer, and the saviour of his people. John saw a vision of one who is risen, who is reigning. The picture we have right here is of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One who is unimpeachable. What about number four? Well, you find it down there in the closing phrase of verse 14, where we discover that his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, what does that tell us this evening? Well, here we see him as the judge, because he's the one who misses nothing. He sees all things. Here is someone who has X-ray vision. Unlike many of us, he has 20-20 vision. Absolutely nothing is hidden from him. Here is the one who can penetrate into the deepest depths. Here is the one who can see behind and beyond every facade. Here is the one who has eyes which search the inmost being of every human heart. And that's why David prayed the way he did in Psalm 139. Isn't that what our friend Peter discovered near the garden? Matthew Henry, the old Bible commentator, said, God not only sees men, he sees through men. You remember the little verse in the book of Genesis, Thou, God, seest me. You know, friends, when it comes to Jesus Christ and this aspect of his character, it means that we can't run away from him. It means we can't lie behind any mask. It means that he sees through it all. I mean, you can't pull the wool over his eyes. 
He has no hidden agenda. Because the Bible reminds us, does it not, that when we see him, everything will be brought out into the open. We may sweep stuff under the carpet down here. We may hang skeletons in yonder closet. We may cover up down here. But one day, our sin will find us out. He is the judge. And do you know what the Bible says right here? Because his eyes are like fire. That means that here is someone who is indignant. One who is angry with what he sometimes sees. Oh yeah, he will judge. Why will he judge? Because men before God are responsible and accountable. And the truth that we learn from this attribute this evening is this. The Lord will do what is right. And he will be seen to do what is right. And so the one who is risen and reigning and righteous is now the one who is revealing. And nothing and no one will hold him back. Another one is found down there in verse 15. And that's where we're told that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What a lovely picture we have right there. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Old Testament teaching, what happened in that bygone era. You see, the mention of brass or bronze under the old economy of the law, it always indicated some kind of judgment. You remember in the tabernacle in the wilderness, we had the brazen altar. What happened? It was there on that brazen altar that the lamb was sacrificed as an atonement for the sins of the people. You see, on that brazen altar, the lamb was consumed. Why? Because the bronze could withstand the fire. It's quite amazing that under the old economy, the fire consumes the lamb. But when you and I take a few minutes and linger around that center cross of Calvary, we find it is the Lamb who consumes the fire of the wrath of God. And what John anticipates here, he's also looking forward to a day into the future, a day at the end of time, when he will put all his enemies and every evil power beneath his nail-scarred feet. The foes of Jesus, at the end of time, they will be crushed. Because the one who is risen and ruling and righteous is the one who is also relentless. And his integrity is untarnished. You see what we're next reminded of here? That his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, may have been to the Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls or wherever. And, you know, think of their incredible power. As the waters roar and rush on by, the cascading gallons just going over the edge. I think John probably has in mind here those mighty ocean waves crashing against the jagged rocks on the Isle of Patmos. The kind of thing that keeps him awake at night. 
But the fact of the matter is that when the Lord speaks, all men will hear. And all men will know that God has spoken. You remember the psalm as David tells us in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. My friends, that ear-splitting sound of his voice in a day to come, it will shake the four corners of heaven and earth. One deafening word from him, and men will jump. A single word from him drowns out every other voice. And the Christ that we meet right here is one who is regal and one whose authority is unchallenged. What else do we discover about him? Down there in verse 16, in his right hand are seven stars. Now, what are we talking about there? Well, those are the angels related to each of the seven churches that we read about, each one having a letter, a personalized letter addressed to them in chapters 2 and in chapter 3. They are the messengers, if you like. They are the spiritual leaders in that congregation. Do you see where they are? They are there in his hand. It seems to me, dear friends, that's a fairly safe, a fairly secure place to be. But when we are in his hand, it's also a place where he can shape us and mold us and fashion us. You see, if I'm not in his hand, where he can use me and shape me, I'm wasting my time because we need to be men and women under his control. You see where they are? They're in his right hand. And again, from Bible speak, we realize the right hand is a hand of power. Think about it like this. The things that overtake us on the journey of life, they're never overlooked by him. They're rather overruled by him because we are in his right hand but he's not careless in any way because the hand that holds the stars still bears the scars of the nails of calvary he is very much in charge. Here is the one who is running the entire show from beginning to end. Here is the one who regulates the universe. And how does he do it? With a power that is unequaled. Did you notice what else we have down here? It says that out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. What's that? Well, that's the word of God, isn't it? And that's what will guide us along the journey of life and on into heaven itself. You see what's happening right here? He has gone on before us. And by his word and with his word and through his word, he will ensure our safe arrival over there as well. I like to think of him in this instance as one who is infinitely resourceful. What a Jesus we certainly have tonight. The final glimpse of him down there 
in this breathtaking vision is that closing phrase in verse 16 where we discover that his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Wow, what a countenance that certainly is. So bright, so warm, so dazzling, it's blinding. What we have right here is what we would call the glow of God. I'm sure all of us know from experience to a greater or lesser degree the sun can bless us but you know something you stay out too long in it when we get a chance to do that it can burn you as well and the fact of the matter is this that all else fades before him here is someone who is eye preeminent here is the incomparable Jesus here is someone who is unique he is the unapproachable one. And yet, by his grace, through faith, we can come and draw near. Here is one who is resplendent with a glory that is undimmed. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in that wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. What a stupendous vision. For dear John. That was a defining moment. John would be able to say. What a wonderful saviour is Jesus my Lord. Many of us can do that this evening as well. Can't we? You see what happened to John. Immediately after. What did he do? He just melted in the presence of God. You remember Abraham, he fell on his face when God talked with him. You remember dear Moses, he hid for he was afraid. Remember Balaam, the Bible says that he bowed his head and he fell flat on his face. Then there was Isaiah, he saw the Lord seated on a higher throne in the temple and he cried out, woe is me for I am ruined. You remember the three disciples? who saw his face shine as the sun, they fell on their faces too. Remember Saul of Tarsus on that Damascus road? He dropped to the ground and he was blinded. We read here in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, folks, the sequel to this is quite amazing because the Lord in grace in compassion in tenderness didn't leave dear John lying there see what we read down there in verse 17 and in verse 18 he says then then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever. Wow. Can you imagine that? What's he talking about? My friend, what we have here is a tender, pick-me-up kind of a touch. It's a touch of reassurance. It's a touch that whispers into John's heart and mind. Look, John, all is well. You know, I think it's wonderful to realize that Jesus wasn't afraid to touch people. In fact, when you read through the gospel narrative, you find he touched all sorts of people, didn't he? Remember when he healed a leper? 
he touched him. When he restored sight to the blind, he put his hands upon their eyes. It was a touch of his hand that brought healing to broken lives. It was a touch of the master's hand that brought strength to those who were crushed. It brought comfort to those who felt abandoned and downcast. It brought acceptance to those who were marginalized in the fringes of society. He touched me, said John. And when Jesus placed that right hand on the trembling shoulder of John, do you see what he said to him? He said, hey, John, don't be afraid. It's me. I am. It's me. I think the first two words of his introduction would mean more to this old saint, this old pilgrim, than anything else. I am. The memories would flood back, wouldn't they? They would register with John straight away. Because at least seven times in the gospel penned by John, that's how Jesus introduced himself. I am. I am. And then you see how he went on to describe himself in a variety of ways. He reminded John that he was the first and the last. My friend, here is it, Jesus, who was all-sufficient. There were none before him. There will be none after him. Nothing came before him, and nothing will come after him. Think about it like this. There never was a time when he didn't exist. And there never will be a time when he does not exist. He is the eternal word, the one who is all-sufficient. But then he went on to tell John that he was the living one. He's the all-victorious one. Death has died. Love has won. Christ has conquered. The Lord is risen. And then to crown it all, he told him that he holds the keys of death in Hades. So it's not only all-sufficient and all-victorious, right here, he's one who is all-powerful. All-powerful. He was basically saying to John that he was sovereign in all matters relating to time and eternity. I'm not sure what that does for your heart this evening. I know what it does for mine. It is immensely encouraging that there are moments in your life and certainly in mine when Jesus comes ever so near and he reveals himself to us in many awesome ways. And as we feel his touch upon our shoulder, he will whisper into our hearts, I am, I am. Just what you need. I am who you need. And you see what it implies down here, don't you? It means that we need not fear life. Because he's the living one. There's no reason for you and I to fear death. Because he died and he's alive, having conquered death. We don't even have to fear eternity. Because he has the keys and they're in his hand. My friend, here is the one who opens the door. The one who is ultimate authority. That old hymn that we sometimes sing. 
spot on when it tells us God holds the key of all unknown and I am glad. You see, dear friends, for you and for me, our future is in his hands and I couldn't be in a better pair of hands. He's got the whole world there and we are there as well. I have to say that every time I read these words, I just can't help recall the words of the song. It goes like this. God of glory, we exalt your name. You who reign in majesty, we lift our hearts to you and we will worship, praise and magnify your holy name. In power resplendent, you reign in glory. Eternal King, you reign forever. Your word is mighty, releasing captives. Your love is gracious. You are my God. You know, folks, that's what it's all about. A new vision of Jesus. Whatever the ups, the downs in your life, mine, a new vision of Jesus. It makes all the difference. Whatever's happening in your life right now, you can say this evening, for this, for this, I have Jesus. Well, let's sing a very fitting song to round our service off this evening. Another one penned by the Gettys, There is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Before the sun will stand, made faultless through the land, believing hearts find promised grace. Salvation comes. Hey, you're singing terrifically well. That's do this one good as well, shall we?
Father, we rejoice the end of another service, towards the end of another Lord's Day, that the Lamb alone is worthy. Father, tonight, through the eye of faith, we've caught but a glimpse, only a glimpse, of our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Father, even though we don't fully understand, or even though we're not able to paint such a wonderful, glossy picture, I pray, Lord, that we might be able to think through and reflect upon the glories of his amazing character. Thank you again that Jesus is all that we need and he is all that we have. And now as we leave and make our way home or back up to the manse, I pray that you will truly go with each one of us and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be in each one gathered here between now and the day when we see him face to face. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you.